Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. As with the other major prophets, the book of Isaiah can be intimidating. Its sheer length, its seemingly disjointed organization, its varied and distant historical context. While a few passages are familiar, like Isaiah's call in chapter 6, the Prince of Peace in chapter 9, and the Suffering Servant in chapter 15, as with the other major prophets, the book of Isaiah can be intimidating. Its sheer length, its seemingly disjointed organization, its varied and distant historical context. While a few passages are familiar, like Isaiah's call in chapter 6, the Prince of Peace in chapter 9, and the Suffering Servant in chapter 53, yet getting a handle on the logic and flow of the whole book remains a significant challenge to many. Here to help is Andrew Abernethy's recent publication, The Book of Isaiah and God's Kingdom, A Thematic Theological Approach, published by InterVarsity Press in 2016. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies. I'm Michael Morales, your host. Andrew T. Abernethy is Assistant Professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois. In addition to the book we'll be discussing, he's also the author of Eating in Isaiah, Approaching Food and Drink in Isaiah's Structure and Message. And he's the co-editor of Isaiah and Imperial Context, The Book of Isaiah in Times of Empire. So clearly, Abernathy knows the book of Isaiah. Let's get started. Andrew, welcome to the show. Great to spend time with you here, Michael. So tell us about yourself first, Andrew. Where did you grow up and how did you get interested in Isaiah? Yeah, so I grew up mostly in the Midwest in Indiana, um, but I was born in California and um, spent a little bit of time in Italy with my uh, family. And then we Ended up settling, uh, for the most part, in uh, the Indianapolis area. And, you know, when I think of my journey of getting interested in Isaiah, um, a couple of things kind of feed into that. I, uh, My parents became uh, Christians when I was about 12 years old, so I, I didn't necessarily grow up in the church, nor did I think I'd uh, go into be, be a professor of the Old Testament Um so I, um, it, when my parents became Christians, um, I got exposed to um, uh, Christian um, ministries and uh, reading scripture. And pretty quickly thereafter, I um, came to place my faith in, um, in Christ and um, to follow him. But when I was in my late teen years, I, I was a basketball player and really um, basketball was a huge part of my uh, family, a huge part of our lives, and I um, really strayed from the Lord, not, not necessarily because of basketball, but, you know, I was more caught up in sports and, um, you know, and ended up uh, turning a, a bit away from the Lord. Um, but he, it was kind of one of those miserable rebellions where, you know, when you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit in you, um, 
as I was rebelling against the Lord, I was regularly uh, convicted um, of turning away from him. And uh, so it was a very kind of conflicted rebellion. And by the end of my uh, sophomore year of college, or middle of my sophomore year of college, actually, I uh, came to a point of uh, brokenness and rediscovery to some extent of God's grace that he would uh, welcome me as a child, kind of the story of the prodigal son through through um, Christ's death for me. And in turning to the Lord, uh, back to the Lord and um, kind of being reacquainted with this forgiveness in, in my life in Christ, you know, I, I didn't turn back thinking again that I would go into to ministry, let alone academics at that point. I've got to admit, my sophomore year of college, I, I had a 0.8 GPA, um, not really all that stellar academically, partly because I wasn't even going to class. But as I turned back to the Lord, um, I transferred to a small uh, liberal arts Christian college. And and um, what I had to take in as classes were some Bible classes. And I came to find out as I was studying um, the Bible that I actually really liked uh, studying, not simply the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. And I began uh, spending a lot of time having devotions, including in the Old Testament, and really um, becoming convinced of its kind of importance in my life. And so some of those early um, moments in college of being formed uh, through the Old Testament really gave me a heart and a desire for uh, knowing more of the Old Testament. And um, I had a professor then uh, who, who since passed away in a um, tragic uh, incident, He, uh, Dr. Uh, Gene Carpenter. And uh, he really lit my fire for uh, Hebrew and for the Old Testament and um, didn't necessarily, again, think I'd be a professor but or, or write books, but I, I was gaining uh, increased confidence in how vital this part of um, God's word is to us. And I um, ended up going to seminary with a calling to teach God's word in some capacity. And then through seminary, I, I had a class with a professor named Willem Van Gemmeren, who uh, is just a wonderful man and gave a real vision as I had a class with him on the prophets for the importance of um, the prophets and the way they are able to speak theologically, not just simply to the era they're initially addressing, but also throughout uh, history as a word to the church today that speaks all the way through to the culmination of all things. So in that class, I really was inspired um, by the prophets and especially loved uh, the prophet Isaiah. Um, and so after a season of pastoral ministry, um, I was feeling called for various reasons to um, pursue um, a PhD. And when I thought, what do I want to study? I thought, Isaiah, what a great book to invest my life in, um, partly because of its riches theologically, but in another part, it's, it's a confusing book. And wow, what a chance to be able to um, you know, serve the church through devoting my life to trying to understand this book. And uh, so really that my interest in Isaiah kind of cropped up kind of in my devotional life with the Lord as I was growing and uh, wanting to know God more and benefiting from Isaiah. But then as I uh, continued on in academics, some doors opened for me 
um, to be able to study uh, the book of Isaiah a bit more uh, closely. So that's that's a little glimpse of how I got interested in Isaiah. I, I've got to say, um, in terms of a little bit of background, and uh, during my doctoral studies, I, I met my, my wife, uh, who's a violinist, Katie, at a uh, church in Chicago, and um, we uh, were married uh, for a year and a half, and then we moved to Australia for a few years, where, where I taught at a seminary called Ridley College in Melbourne. And uh, during that time, we had a baby uh, named Anna uh, in Australia. She, we say she's our best, uh, our best souvenir from Australia, um, who we brought back with us. And uh, since we've been back in the States, uh, we're, and I've been teaching at Wheaton College, we've added uh, another uh, sweet little girl, uh, Bethany, into our mix. Uh, she was born uh, about a year after we, we got uh, back here to the state. So that's a little glimpse of my, my background, Michael. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that journey. Now, your book is called Book of Isaiah and God's Kingdom, a Thematic Theological Approach. Can you tell us about some of your aims in writing this book? Yeah, the aims really spring from what I found to be uh, something missing in the field of Isaiah studies. When I was at Ridley College in Melbourne, I was uh, asked to teach a couple uh, different times classes on the book of Isaiah. And I could pretty readily identify a couple commentaries that I really thought would be helpful for students who are training primarily for ministry and um but what I found is, you know, students will rarely read through, say, a whole commentary, and it's hard to get the big picture. And I would have to kind of assign random chapters from here or there, but was never really kind of satisfied with the, with what I can make available to the students to give them that big picture feel of the themes in the book and with the book's theology. Then I was asked to uh, speak at a, a pastor's conference and lead a workshop on preaching from Isaiah. And that's hard to do um, because, first of all, there's such little knowledge about Isaiah. And I think what I've gathered uh, through the years of engaging with students and ministers is that there's this kind of sense that Isaiah is a really important book, but also this uh, intimidation by Isaiah. I, I, I once um, had a student after class say, you know, um, Dr. Abernethy, I, I had a... Um, <clears throat> feeling at the beginning of class of being completely intimidated. It was like standing at the base of Mount Everest. But now um, <clears throat> that we've had this class and had a big picture orientation, I really am excited to be climbing up and through this mountain and preaching from this book. And so what I came to see is that people were really valuing um, an approach that is uh, concentrated around themes that enables uh, people to conceptualize uh, the book. And the theme that I focus on, is, which we'll talk, I'm sure, more about in due course, is uh, the king, the theme of God as king. What I began to see is that there's this emphasis upon God being king kind of throughout the book that provides an orientation uh, for many of its major parts. And then this king having lead agents, uh, as we'll talk about the Davidic king, the suffering servant, and an anointed messenger who are kind of lead agents in proclaiming and preparing and establishing God's kingdom. And then um, thinking about, well, what do God's kingdom people look like and where is God's kingdom? And I, and I found using that kingdom entry or those themes 
was really helpful for uh, students and for ministers I was um, relating to for thinking about the book as a whole. And the second part of the subtitle isn't, so it's a thematic theological approach. It's willing to ask uh, some of the theological questions that I think naturally arise for most Christians as they're reading Isaiah. And, and as you know, Michael, as one who's involved both in serving the church, but also making contributions to the academy, kind of when you're a, a academic in Old Testament studies, you're, you're constantly a little bit worried that if you start talking about how passages relate to Jesus or uh, speak to the church, that, that those in your guild will kind of blow the whistle on you and call foul saying, hey, wait a minute, you're imposing New Testament ideas into the Old Testament text. And so a lot of what we can get in Old Testament studies is a lot of great groundwork uh, and exegesis of trying to understand what text might have meant back then. But I found that a lot of pastors um, and students training for Christian ministries are really hungry to take some of those next steps that build upon the exegesis of thinking theologically of, well, what's this text saying about God? How does this uh, bear witness to who we proclaim in Jesus Christ? And how does this um, address the church today? So I've kind of used the concept of kingdom as a way of thinking about the different themes in the book. And I've done so in light of what the book is saying theologically uh, as it might be understood in light of its larger function in the canon of bearing witness to Christ. So do you argue that the kingship of God is the major theme, the unifying theme of the book of Isaiah? I do. I, I really think that God, God's kingship is uh, the unifying feature um, that kind of holds the book together. And I think we can see that in a couple ways. And, you know, a number of scholars have begun to see this. I think of a, um, a Dutch scholar um, named Willem Buchen, who's begun doing a lot of work on this, and um, Hugh Williamson and, and a few others. When we look at, say, for example, if you, if you think of the book of Isaiah, you know, Isaiah didn't just sit down and say, well, let me write the whole book of Isaiah. I think what we have in Isaiah is a collection of um, prophetic oracles that were written or spoken um, um, at different parts of the prophet's um, life and ministry. Um, there's debate on whether or not there are also later um, materials added in beyond the prophet's life. But nonetheless, I think what we're looking at in the book of Isaiah is a compilation, a collection of these different oracles, different um, sayings, different um, stories that are now kind of put together in book form. And I think when we look at the way the book has actually been arranged, I think that the book is trying to emphasize God's kingship. For example, one, one way we see that is in uh, chapters 1 to 12. The very center point of that is Isaiah's vision of God as king seated, seated on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6. Then in the next, uh, so that's kind of like the hub of the opening section of the book. Um, then we get um, in chapters 13 to 27, the next major section of the book, this kind of culminating vision in chapters 24 to 25 of God coming to establish his reign on Mount Zion. Um, another section of the book, for example, Isaiah 40 to 55, many scholars have recognized this movement 
where Isaiah 40 opens with this vision of God kind of coming as a, uh, a shepherd king. And it, it kind of culminates in Isaiah 52 with uh, the proclamation, your God reigns. Then uh, similar insights can be made for the final part of the book where God's kingship is at the center of it in chapter 60. And then recapitulated at the end of the uh, entire book in chapter 66, where this establishment of God's kingdom and his glory going out throughout the whole whole world. So I, I would very much say that not just some, I, I think I have a basis looking at the way the book's been structured in order that this book wants to try to especially impress upon us the nature of God's uh, God himself being the king. And this makes sense a bit if you think about when this book was written. I mean, the book of Isaiah uh, in its original days was written during a time when the Assyrian kingdom was prominent. Um, they seemed to hold the most sway. The book of Isaiah looks to a time when, say, after that, Babylon will be in charge, then Persia. And so it makes sense for a, a book here to be presented that's trying to help God's people see, hey, wait a minute. Yes, you see all these powerful earthly kingdoms, but guess what? It's God, our God, who is the king. And um, I, so I think that... Um, for a variety of reasons that God's kingship, I would say, is at the center of the book. But then kind of like the spokes in a wheel, there are those different parts of it where God having an agents that establish his kingdom, God having a kingdom community, what that community is supposed to look like, um, where God's kingdom is, etc., are kind of connected to God being king. So I think a lot of things can relate to the theme of God's kingship. Um, as a really prominent, um, prominent theme uh, throughout the book. Well, before I forget, I do want to mention that your book closes with teaching outlines, and that's a really helpful resource. Yeah, but that stems from a pre preaching workshop on Isaiah that I led, and I would start using that in classes, and I'm really grateful that uh, D.A. Carson and um, uh, IVP you know, thought, hey, this may be a good I good idea. So, again, preachers will know much better how to preach and how to title series um, if, for their particular congregation. But hopefully it can be a good food for thought for maybe how to go from reading uh, this book into uh, what, what it, you know, it's good to be able to prompt their own thinking about how to best preach this book in their congregation. So. Well, turning to the first chapter of your book, you've already touched on some aspects of this, but can you summarize for us the theme of God's kingdom in Isaiah chapters 1 through 39? Yeah, so I think the big thing that we see in the different parts of the book are different vantage points on God being king. You know, I think Sometimes when we want to kind of say, here's a theme in the book, we, we just want to have one kind of flavor, if you will. But God's kingship, I think, takes on a different flavor in the different parts of the book. And in 1 to 39, the flavor we get, particularly in the first um, part of 1 to 39, is a vision of God as, as king, in particular as a holy king. This is most prominent in Isaiah 6, where we see um, this vision where Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So in this year that this King um, Uzziah, a human king, has, has died off, 
it's striking that he sees the Lord in Isaiah 6. And, and uh, as you know, Michael, when it says Lord in lowercase L-O-R-D, this is Adonai. This isn't Yahweh uh, being used. So it, there's choice to say, I saw the Lord. The word Lord is, is a name for a ruler or, or the, the one who governs. And so he says, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted. And so this, this vision of God as king, who Isaiah encounters, kind of strikes at the heart of the prophet's message. Because it goes on to talk about this amazing scene of the seraphim flying around him where they can't even gaze upon this king. They're covering their eyes, their feet, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And so there's this vision of this holy king who's reigning when? Right now. Reigning at the time that Isaiah was looking upon this throne during this time when a king had died. And the Isaiah's response, of course, is one of being undone. One of saying, woe is me. And if you notice how he summarizes his vision, he says, Woe in me is me, for I am undone. I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. So Isaiah's fundamental encounter at that moment is with God as a king who is a holy king, and he is completely struck by his own sinfulness in light of such a vision of God as this holy king. And so I think what one of the first parts of the book aims to do is to kind of heighten our awareness of who God is as a holy, holy, holy king. And this makes sense of kind of these early chapters, which are so full of kind of messages of judgment, where the book opens by telling the saying the people are dumber than uh, donkeys and they're rebellious children, and they're sinful, they're whores, all this stark language, and, and you're left just, you know, what, having a difficulty swallowing that. But then when you see, well, of course, look at how holy, holy, holy this king is, and it makes sense why he would be so offended by the sin that he sees among those who should be his holy people, so offended by the injustice, by the idolatry. And so this vision of God as this holy, holy, holy king grants perspective on how it is that God can bring judgment, particularly judgment through Assyria against his very own people. And, um, and I find that this is, I, I share in, in the book about this, I remember preaching on Isaiah once, um, six, once in a church, and, and someone came up to me afterwards, someone who, who I greatly admire her walk with God. And she said, thank you for this message. I, I tend to really think of God as a friend, but I also realize that I need to always be mindful that God is also a holy king. And this, this, and I think that's a bit of what Isaiah 1 to 39 is impressing upon us is of this greatness of God, who's a holy king who reigns right now and who um, therefore is going to bring judgment within time and space during, during Isaiah's time. So that's, that's one of the major flavors, I think, that we get of God's kingship in 1 to 39. And there are others 
um, that I deal with in the book. Um, but uh, that's kind of the major flavor I think we're introduced to there in the first um, first part of Isaiah. In O. Palmer Robertson's work on the prophets, he argues that in the call narrative of the prophet, you basically have the entire book summarized. And it sounds like that's what you're saying about Isaiah. Yeah, certainly. And, and one of the features, like if, if listeners just do a search on the title Holy One of Israel, they'll notice that this phrase occurs only very rarely outside of the book of Isaiah. But throughout the whole book of Isaiah, you see him, uh, God referred to as the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. And that's distinct. I think that's a great observation by Robertson that we see um, Isaiah's encounter with God as a holy king really informs uh, the rest of his ministry. But but I, I failed to mention, of course, after Isaiah's undone, it's striking that this holy, holy, holy king sends a seraphim with a coal to fly over and touch Isaiah's lips and to say, your sins have been atoned for. So this holy, holy, holy king is one who is willing to forgive, willing to bring atonement, but he's also one who's going to bring judgment. And what uh, when we talk about my next chapter in the book, we'll see a bit more of that side of um, God being a holy king, but also one who's uh, willing to willing to forgive. So, um, so yeah, that that encounter Isaiah has with with the prophet is, uh, or Isaiah has with uh, with the Lord there in his call narrative really does uh, shape his, his message in the book. What about in Isaiah forty through fifty five? How does the theme of God's kingship develop here? Yeah, so. In 40 to 55, which is my second chapter in the book, there's a couple ways that uh, it develops. We find a shift in Isaiah 40 to a strong message of comfort and encouragement. So a prominent theme in 1 to 39 is that God would bring judgment. In chapters, chapter 39, there's this expectation that ultimately God's people will be taken into Babylonian captivity. But when you get to 40, there's this, it's it's just this break of, and I use this image in the book of, uh, I think of a scene in Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne um, is in the uh, warden's office and finds a, a old uh, record player and plays this beautiful operatic m- uh, music that just rains uh, uh, this beautiful heavenly sound across the prison yard, and the people are just struck by it. Um, and I think that's a bit of what we have going on in 40 to 55. There's this shift of profound encouragement. And I, I've had people when I uh, that have talked to me about Isaiah said, yeah, I'm reading Isaiah right now. Um, and especially when I've got to, four, you know, the second half of the book, it's so encouraging. Um, and that's what we see uh, developed here around God's kingship. In Isaiah 41 to 11, there's this vision of um, this message that comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. And this message of comfort is that their sins have been forgiven. 
namely the, the, the time I, I, that they've spent in the original context there in exile has kind of run its course. They've received their punishment for their sin. And so now it's time um, to prepare for that. We see this need to prepare. In verse 3, it says, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, some Old Testament scholars will talk about this way in the wilderness being prepared. It's really a, a highway being prepared for Israel to return back home from exile. But when you read it, it says, prepare the way for Yahweh, for the Lord. Prepare a highway for our God. This is about not merely the return of the people. It's about the return of God himself. And that is the great hope that I think opens Isaiah 40. And I, I love the idea of, of John Piper's book, God is the Gospel. I very much think Isaiah 40 would agree with that. The good news for the people is that God is going to return. And that's where we see in Isaiah 40, verse 9, where it says, You get up, uh, you bringer of good news, O Zion, you uh, bearer of good news, which uh, is a background for the, the New Testament term for gospel. So what what is the message that there uh, that Judah is to bring or, or science to bring of good news? It's an announcement that here is your God. See the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with the mighty arm. And so the vision of hope that opens Isaiah 40 is this vision of God coming, God returning, God coming as king. And it says he comes as king with power. And he rules with a mighty arm. But then it goes on to say, and then he tends his flock like a shepherd, and he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. My, when I have football players in, in my class, I, I say this is like God coming and looking like the Heisman Trophy. With one arm, he's coming with his great power and might, bringing judgment and bringing power to establish his reign on Zion. But with his other arm, he's gathering uh, like a football player would carry football, he's gathering his own people just like a shepherd would carry his flock. And as you know, in the ancient world, shepherd is an image for king. And this vision of God coming as the shepherd king opens the book in Isaiah 40, and it kind of builds this arc in Isaiah 52 to Isaiah 52, where we see a verse, again, that's quoted in the New Testament where it says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns, or your God rules as king. So from Isaiah 40 to 52, there's this big arc within that section around the coming of God, and in particular, this proclamation of good news, this gospel namely the gospel that your God reigns. And this is such an encouraging message if you think about this addressing those who would be in exile, who have no land, who have no temple, who have no sense of God, uh, them being God's people anymore. They, they're out of the land. But this hope is that God is going to return someday and he will set up his reign as king. So that's one of the big encouraging I think, motifs of God coming as a saving king in Isaiah 40 to 55. But another motif that of God's kingship that I see developed in the book is that as the people would have been in, or that I developed in uh, my second chapter, is 
that the people in exile would have been really worried and wondering about whether their God, Yahweh, is the supreme God or not. They're seeing Marduk and other gods in Babylon and wondering who really is the supreme God. So it's remarkable how over and over again, God is portrayed as being God alone in this section. And when you read the Numa Lish, which um, highlights um, uh, the kingship of Marduk as the supreme god, as the creator god, etc., who's worthy of being considered king, I think we see the Lord portrayed in his exclusivity as the creator, as the only god among gods, in a way that also highlights God being king, the only king, the only god of uh, the entire world. So. Um, those are a couple motifs that um, are if we go back to the idea of flavors, uh, different flavor of God's kingship that's impressed upon us in Isaiah 40 to 55 of God being a saving king, but also being the one and only king overall, um, above all other gods. I like how you've woven together the themes of new Exodus and Yahweh's kingship in the original Exodus story, you have that same dynamic where the Exodus deliverance culminates in the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, at the heart of which the kingship of Yahweh is declared. Yeah, that, that's right. His saving power is closely connected with him displaying his kingship above all other gods and powers. Andrew, your third chapter refers to God the warrior. Would you discuss that for a moment? Yeah, so... We don't often think of warrior in connection to kingship, but when you look at, um, even if we look at some common psalms that people know, um, who is this king of glory? Um, and it goes on, it is the Lord, the Lord mighty in battle. Uh, you look at King David, who was really acknowledged as king in light of his great power. And so what we often uh, forget is when people needed salvation, when people needed deliverance, they looked to their king for that. They looked for their king to bring military victory. And in Isaiah uh, 56 to 66, what we find is a portrayal of God as oh, coming as what I call a warrior king, a God who will come and he sees no injustice in the no justice in the world in Isaiah 59. And he comes as a king who, who brings um, great judgment in some of the most gruesome passages uh, that, that we have in the book of Isaiah. And similar, that's echoed in Isaiah 63, this vision of God coming in great judgment as this warrior king. And this is fitting with this final part of the book, which is moving in an increasingly eschatological direction, where in uh, 1 to 39, there's vision of, say, God using Assyria, God using Babylon and judgment. But now in the final part of the book, it's moving in a, this direction of God himself coming and bringing uh, this great work of uh, war or great execution of, of war and justice. And there is that negative side of judgment, but then there's a positive side where this is also linked how God is ultimately establishes his kingdom of salvation uh, for those whom he's delivering. Um, so that's a little bit of where I go with the notion of God as king um, as it relates to God being the warrior king. Your book not only develops God's kingship, but also the human agents of the king. Tell us about the role of Davidic rulers in Isaiah. Yeah, so 
And when we think of God acting as king, um, I lay out three different um, lead agents that God uses. And one of those lead agents is the Davidic king. There are four passages in Isaiah 1 to 39 that depict this. You see it in Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 16, and Isaiah 32. And what's interesting as I studied that, we often think of kind of God using a Davidic king to kind of bring about this military battle or of, of deliverance, but really it's almost as if God has brought deliverance, but now the Davidic king in particular will be God's agent of bringing justice and righteousness to the realm of God's kingdom. So if you think of people at the time of Isaiah when they're facing judgment, when they're People are confiscating houses of the poor when the orphan and the widow aren't getting a fair uh, deal. This vision of God bringing about a work where he would establish, um, use a Davidic king to establish justice um, in society would have been a great hope. And I'm, I'm reminded of uh, one of my uh, Sudanese students in, in Australia. After we were talking about God's kingship and him or Davidic kingship, being especially a, a means of God bringing justice into the world, remember him saying, oh, yes, that would be so great, a king who brings justice. And we don't resonate with that as much in the U.S., but those who've been in war-torn contexts, places of persecution, would really see the value of having a society where there is justice and equity for all. And the Davidic king is, is kind of God's means of bringing that about. And we see a number of passages that talk about how the Lord is, ex God himself is exalted in justice and righteousness. And I think that this is an extension of God's desire for justice and righteousness in the world that can be carried out through these lead aid, this lead agent of a Davidic uh, king. Now you mentioned the three agents of the king, the Davidic ruler, the servant, and the messenger. Are these three different agents key to the three different sections of the book of Isaiah? Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. I think in a, when we look at the Davidic, it, it's interesting. There's, uh, it's slightly uh, debated. There is a reference for to David in Isaiah 55, but um, and it, there's debate on how to understand that. But it's striking that in Isaiah 1 to 30 or 40 to 66. There's really no reference of God using a Davidic king. So in 40 to 66, the, the, message, the focus, say, on the servant is one that's kind of addressing the needs of those who would be in exile in particular. They need uh, to be uh, brought, uh, what I uh, portray, um, a, a sort of priestly function by uh, the servant of bringing atonement for sins through the suffering servant. So bringing about forgiveness that will enable a restoration uh, when God uh, re returns. And in the final part of the book, where we have this anointed messenger as it awaits this kind of coming of God, who's going to come as this warrior king who will then establish this international kingdom in Zion. This anointed messenger is the one who's kind of the hairbringer, the, the one right before it, just saying, hey, look, the kingdom of God is at hand, you know, and is pro really proclaiming this message. So 1 to 39 is primarily kind of related to things going on back in Judah and Jerusalem. So it makes sense to envision a time when a Davidic king would bring justice and righteousness in that realm. 
40 to 55, which focuses more on realities of exile. I think it makes sense for a, a servant who would have more of an international ministry that would then be able to bring about atonement for the people uh, for their sins. And then in 56 to 66, which is more of a kind of vision of this cosmic inbreaking of God's final uh, establishment of his kingdom for there to be this final messenger that's kind of announcing, hey, God uh, announced uh, or put in place to announce that this freedom that they're waiting for is now breaking in. A big question in Isaiah's scholarship related to these three agents. Are they to be related? Are they the same person? The way that I equate them in the book, the standard, or not the standard, um, most evangelicals will kind of have this tendency to say these are the same people. The servant is uh, David, uh, the messenger of the Lord in Isaiah 40, um, or in Isaiah 61 is David. Um, but I think at times what that does is it, it prevents one from actually seeing that these three actually have quite distinct roles within their parts of the book. And um, so critical scholars will say, actually, uh, these are three entirely distinct roles, but they'd go farther than that and say, for example, in Isaiah 40 to 55, which was, in their view, uh, written later, they've moved away from uh, hopes for a Davidic king. And in fact, what happens then in the final form of the book, they would say, is that the book ultimately gives up hopes for a Davidic king. Um, there, it's no longer in play. And what I want to say is, wait a minute. I do think that these different portraits of these agents are envisioning different works that God is bringing about, if you will, through a king and through a priestly figure and through a prophetic figure. Um, but just because these different parts of the book are envisioning God using different uh, sort of agents, they're united in the sense not in being exactly the same person in, in the mindset of the book. I, I, I'm not sure that they would have thought this is the same person. But they would have been united in a sense that they're all agents of God himself, the king. So they're both kingdom, all kingdom agents. But, of course, when we move further down the line in the canon, when Jesus comes, it's remarkable how all three of these sort of visions for offices that God will use culminate in the person of Jesus and I'm not sure that the those who compiled the book of Isaiah in its final form knew that this would be the same person um, uh, because they're quite different perspectives and missions that these agents have. But I think that um, what, what is remarkable is how they all do come together ultimately in Jesus. So I would say, yes, they ultimately do refer to the same, find their fulfillment in the same person. But I, I think that it's wise to let each kind of vision to really have its own, uh, each agent uh, and its uniqueness to be highlighted without necessarily requiring that they're all uh, the same uh, Davidic agent understood throughout the, throughout the entire book and its original uh, composition. So would that be similar to the three offices, prophet, priest, and king, which are distinct in the Old Testament, but which the New Testament understands as culminating in the one person of Christ? Yeah, that, that's right. And Mark Boda's work on uh, the uh, minor prophets, I think, um, has a similar sense that there are these different agents. It doesn't splice it exactly how it is in Isaiah, 
that are going to be playing an important role in establishing God's kingdom when he comes again. And so very, so I think that prophet, priest, king motif um, can fit uh, fairly well with, with what we have here in the book. This has been a fascinating and helpful look at the book of Isaiah. Are you working on any other books or projects at the moment? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm I'm uh, going to be going further in Isaiah. I'm going to be writing a book called Discovering Isaiah that's part of a new series that Erdman's and SPCK are putting out. And what they're trying to do is introduce readers to Isaiah by drawing upon uh, three areas that are sometimes divided in biblical scholarship, namely historical backgrounds, uh, literary analysis of, of the book of Isaiah, but then also reception history. And that, that's kind of the piece that I'm excited about how to incorporate, say, how Isaiah has been received in the history of the church and Jewish tradition and art and literature and uh, so forth in a way that can kind of help students in an integrative way um, engage with the book. So there'll be a little bit of overlap between what I've written in this book and that book, but it'll be kind of approached uh, from a, a different angle. Um, also, um, I'm writing an a essay on wisdom in Isaiah for an Oxford handbook on Isaiah that's uh, going to be coming out, and as well doing um, part of an edited book uh, that on uh, interpreting the Old Testament theologically. And, um, and there may be a book in the works. Uh, we're we're going to see a uh, contract is uh, hopefully imminent um, on a, a colleague from Australia, Greg Goswell. Um, and I uh, may collaborate to write a book on thinking about uh, the nature of the Messiah throughout the entire Old Testament. So drawing on some things I've done in the book of Isaiah, but going a bit further and looking um, at the different parts of the Old Testament. So those are the things um, that I plan to work on over the next few years and look forward to seeing how they, how they all come together and hopefully serve the church and benefit others. That all sounds good and helpful. Andrew, all the best to you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Great. It's been a pleasure talking with you, Michael. We've been talking to Andrew Abernethy about his new book, The Book of Isaiah and God's Kingdom, a thematic theological approach, again published by InterVarsity Press in 2016. You'll find a link to it on our website at newbooksnetwork.com. We're grateful you've listened in. Until next time, goodbye.